This week in the Dan Cave, I dive a little deeper into my love-hate relationship with Pete Carroll, why I'm worried about recent trends with him, and how he can prove me wrong. And as the Seahawks get set to face Tampa Bay this Sunday, are they looking at a classic trap game? And we'll talk Mariners, as we are literally on the eve of the offseason. Let's get specific. I'll give you three names today of free agents I think the team should sign. Don't be scared. Step into the Dan Cave next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 57 of the Dan Cave, the Cody Barton episode, if we're going by jersey numbers. Um, thanks for joining me. Second episode recorded here at the new uh, studios in Renton. Um, I talked last episode. Well, there wasn't one last week, and that was because the moving process kind of got the better of me. Uh, I talked two weeks ago about um, about the moving process, how moving out kind of sucks. Moving in is fun, though, and it has been, although um, there's always that point when you realize it's more than you thought it was, and I'm, I'm looking at a pile of boxes uh, and some bags full of clothes right now. Um, that still need to be tended to, but we're we're getting close. We're we're in the home stretch, probably the last ten percent uh, needing to be finished. So, um, uh, other than that, everything's going great. It's a beautiful sunny day outside, and we get to talk about some sports. We uh, are almost at the end of baseball season. In fact, we're on the eve of the off season. Literally, game seven set tonight between the Nationals and Astros, and what has been. A fascinating World Series. Um, regardless of, of who you're pulling for, where your loyalties lie, uh, this is the kind of World Series that just reminds me how great the game of baseball is. And I love Game 7s. And how weird is it that the road team has won every game? That's never happened through six games in World Series history. Um, and if, uh, if form holds true... Um, then the Nationals would win tonight, right? But what's great about a Game 7 is you get to empty the chamber. You get to use everything at your disposal. The starting pitching matchup tonight is Zach Greinke for the Astros and Max Scherzer of the Nationals. The Scherzer story could be a classic one. Two days ago, couldn't even put it on his own pants. Had to get a cortisone shot. His back locked up on him. Now he's pitching Game 7. But you can use basically every pitcher on your roster. Patrick Corbin's going to pitch tonight for the Nationals. We're going to see uh, Garrett Cole at some point tonight um, for the Astros. And there's even talk, could Steven Strasburg turn back around or Justin Verlander and pitch to a batter or two if they need to tonight. But I digress. Didn't mean to talk so much about the World Series, but the, I'm, I've got MOB network on in the background and they're replaying last night's game they're at the point where Bregman just hit his home run and and carried the bat down to first base and and so it's uh it's a little bit on my mind but I want to start with football uh tonight by the way um if you're listening for the first time appreciate you finding me uh if you're a repeat listener I appreciate the loyalty uh I want to thank you all for listening you can support the podcast by hitting the subscribe button That will let you know when I post a new episode. I try to do it weekly. Sometimes life gets in the way. But you can also support me if you listen on Apple Podcasts by leaving a review. 
I have one so far. It's a five-star review. I appreciate it greatly. That really helps when it comes to positioning and search engines and things like that. Um, if you like the podcast, it'd be great if you could take a couple of minutes and leave a review for me. Okay, enough self-promotion. Let's get on to the game of football. And the Seahawks finished the first half of the season at 6-2. and two, But <laughs> it's it, it's been a polarizing experience so far in this first half being a Seahawks fan because yes they're 6 and 2 yes if the Seahawks started today they would be one of the wild card teams um but not everyone is feeling great about the Seahawks right now there's a lot of yeah but yeah they're 6 and 2 but look who they've beaten uh yeah they're 6 and 2 but look at the 49ers so not going to catch the 49ers and the Rams are getting hot again um, and New Orleans just got Breeze back, and the Vikings are looking good, and there's a lot of that. And and I've been guilty of that at times myself, and particularly because I have some real questions about the approach of our head coach lately. And I wanted to dig into that a little deeper today, because if you've read some of my stuff on Seahawk Maven, and in particular if you've read my Closing Thoughts columns the last two weeks, where I write uh, the day after the game, kind of a morning after sort of look at it, where you try to uh, try to set the emotion aside, put a little distance between the game and myself, and write about it from that perspective and try to be more objective. Two weeks ago, I was extremely hard on Coach Carroll for his decisions uh, in the Ravens game. Um, and this week, the column was largely about Carroll's decisions and how he managed the second half, um, but also trying to find some understanding as to why he did it, even though I disagree with the approach. So if you've read my stuff on Twitter or heard things from me here in the Dan Cave and and you think that I'm a Pete Carroll hater, I just kind of wanted to clarify my position uh, on that. <clears throat> um. And I wanted to because there's a growing culture out there. I don't know if it's growing necessarily, but there's a culture out there, and I think it's mainly made up of newer fans, post-2012, 2013-ish Seahawk fans who came on board when the team got good under Carroll, went to -to back-to-back Super Bowls, won one. And a lot of those fans don't want to listen to anything negative or even remotely critical of the Seahawks. If you do anything other than fart out rainbow-colored unicorns and rose petals out of your butt, you're not a true devoted 12, according to them. And I did air quotes for 12 because I hate that term. To me, you're a fan or you're not. talked about this before. Fan is short for fanatic. You're a diehard passionate fan about your team the whole 12 thing to me and and the people that that call themselves that with pride are only outing themselves for not being lifetime devoted fans for the right reasons which is you choose a team not because they're good but because you love them and then you just ride the roller coaster the rest of the way to those i say <laughs> nothing really i try not to engage in debate with those types of fans i used to 
but it was too frustrating and it never led to any kind of intelligent debate anyway. And that's what I like to do. I like intelligent debate. My mind can be changed. I've softened my stance. You've seen me on Twitter be really, really pissed off about something that happens in a game or off the field and then come back a day or two later and kind of lighten my stance on that. I'm open to it. But those people don't like to debate and they don't, they're, they're just, everything's positive. Everything's about the Seahawks is great. And even if they were 0-8 right now, they would just be, they're our guys and love our guys. And they're going to come back and they're going to win eight in a row. And the, and the season, it'll be a moral victory. Even if they don't make the playoffs, it's okay. Everything's okay. It's possible to love a team, support them, believe they're good, and also still be critical of them. It's really, actually, there's a billion-dollar industry based on that. It's called television sports broadcasting. Without debate, there wouldn't be any of that. Look at all the shows on ESPN and other networks like that. Anyway, now I try to identify those people and just shut them out. I don't try to engage them. But uh, the fact of the matter is, if you are a truly passionate, devoted fan, you are able to see the good and the bad. And talk about it openly. And so we're going to do that here. There are times this year, there have been times this year, that I'm afraid that Pete Carroll has become a problem. Even at 6-2. and And that he may be doing more to hold this team back than he is in helping them reach their ceiling. Even at 6-2, and I believe this team is better than they've played. I think they should have played better against the Ravens and Saints and had opportunities to do so within those games. But decisions by the coach held them back. And even in the wins, I think their approach, their game plan against Cincinnati in game one was terrible, and they were lucky to get out of there with a win. And I think what happened in the second half last week against Atlanta, which I wrote about extensively on, on Seahawk Maven, um, was another little chink in Carroll's armor that, that kind of brings up my concerns. I want to say this. I absolutely love how he goes about his business. I love the man. And I love the virtues that he extols. I love the positivity, the focus on building up each individual to be the best they can be while also extolling the virtues of his place within the team and how everything he does and says affects the team in one way or the other. He's built a culture in Seattle that players want to be a part of. We've seen it a lot this year. Jadavian Clowney said he wanted to come here because of that. Guys like Geno Smith, who was cut by the team for strategic purposes, the intention was to bring him back later uh, before the opener. and But they had to trust that he wouldn't sign elsewhere. He said he was offered more money elsewhere, still came back. Loved it here. Jamar Taylor is another example of that. You hear guys say on a, on a daily basis how much they love it here. I love everything about how he approaches life on and off the field and how he approaches and his, his enthusiasm for the game of football and for shaping men. But his always compete and win forever catchphrases 
I think, and I fear, have now become hypocritical to the way he actually coaches the team and manages games. And this is what worries me about Pete Carroll. He says, always compete. Don't care how much guys make. Don't care their draft status. If they're the better player, they're going to play. We're not seeing it. Example, Jamarco Jones. DJ Fluker gets hurt. Jamarco Jones slides inside to right guard where he's never played as a professional, never played at Ohio State. And he's the highest graded offensive lineman by Pro Football Focus for the three weeks that he plays. Clearly an upgrade over DJ Fluker. But as soon as Fluker's back, gets his spot back. Example, Jermaine Effetti. It's been a train wreck for the last four years. Marginally improved in pass protection last year, but still struggles, still doesn't look natural, still has miscommunication issues and gets beat one-on-one, yet every week he gets run out there. Still has penalty issues, yet every week he keeps his job. And not just keeps his job, but Pete Carroll came out a week ago and was just raving about the guy. They think he's playing the best he's ever played. None of the rest of us see it. Jamarco Jones is a natural tackle. As well as he played at right guard, shouldn't he get the chance to compete against Jermaine Effetti? He's not getting that chance. Example, taking the ball out of your best player's hands last year in Dallas in the wildcard playoff game. That's been talked to death, but it's an example. Here's another example. The way he's tied himself into knots trying to figure out how to handle game situations. The way he openly contradicts himself and questions himself and talks about whether to go for it. I've been too aggressive. Now I need to be more conservative. Then he comes out the next week and and talks like he's always been conservative and that's just the way he's going to be. Wouldn't always compete mean that when the game situation calls for it, you're going to be aggressive? It's not happening. How he managed the second half last week against Atlanta. Went into shutdown mode. Went into prevent defense. Gave Matt Schaub and Julio Jones the middle of the field on purpose because they wanted to keep the ball inbounds, keep the clock running. They were perfectly fine giving up yards, hoping to shut them down when they got near the red zone. And they called off the dogs on offense. Russell Wilson threw the ball five times in the second half. And they opened the game throwing the football. They kind of did the old use the pass to set up the run. Russell threw it a lot in the first quarter. Then they came back with the Carson-Penny combo in the second quarter. It looked great. And then they just put their foot, took their foot off the gas pedal in the second half. He admitted after the game that he that he messed up. That he went about it the wrong way in halftime and, and miscommunicated it to the guys. He was vague like he always is. But what it sounded like to me was he didn't want to embarrass his buddy Dan Quinn who's on the hot seat in Atlanta. They were up 24-0, called off the dogs. That's not always compete. That's sometimes compete. I don't like it. I just watched, I finally got around to watching that HBO 24-7 piece where they featured in uh, hard knock style. They focused uh, for a week at a time on four different football programs throughout the year. And uh, Washington State Cougars were one of them. They were the last one. And uh, their episode uh, debuted last Wednesday. I watched that. And the game that ended up being featured was their game at home against Colorado. They won 41-10. 
They were up big at halftime and in the second half. And it was the exact polar opposite of the way Pete Carroll managed the second half in Atlanta. Players on the sideline. Coach leads to his players. Everybody in that locker room. Don't let up. One play at a time. Step on the gas. Keep trying to score. Keep going after them. That's how football should be played because you never know. Washington State saw that themselves. Gave up a 32-point lead in the third quarter against UCLA earlier this year. Really defined their season and kind of ruined their season in some ways. Who's to say Atlanta ended up making it a seven-point game, but who's to say that it couldn't have been disaster? Crazy things happen. Go to hand the football off, Chris Carson fumbles it. You get a kick blocked. You muff a punt return. The ball bounces in funny ways. You can't take those kinds of chances. Dan Quinn would understand. Dan Quinn understands that the Seahawks have goals in front of them and they have an agenda and they have things they want to accomplish. It worries me. It worries me. I even tweeted last week, man, if we could just merge the best parts of Pete Carroll and Mike Leach, right? They're both stubborn as hell. Leach goes for it too often, throws it too much, doesn't run it when he should, when the weather's bad or the or the team's daring him to run the football. Carroll's become ultra conservative and careful. Doesn't want to take risks. You know what that says to me? It says he doesn't trust his football team. That he didn't trust that defense in the second half. That completely shut down Atlanta in the first half. That he doesn't trust Russell Wilson even. And the offense. To put more points on the board. To not turn the ball over. That's a problem. And what happened in the second half against Atlanta is a problem. Because that type of approach instills even subtly, even subconsciously, in the in the minds of the players, that thought process. It takes away that edge that great teams need to have. Once we get up on a team, we're going to reel it back in. So now what happens? They go out Sunday, they get a 14-point nothing lead on Tampa Bay, even if Pete Carroll doesn't gather them around and say, okay, let's, let's chill now. That voice in those players' heads, they're going to hear it. It becomes habit. It's a bad habit. I want a coach that shows no mercy. And Carroll gets defensive. It's subtle, but you can hear it. He bristles at that idea. And he sounded almost defiant this week in his like Monday radio shows and press conferences. Kind of a sort of a subtle disdain for the press and and fan reaction. It sounds like I you know, I think he reads that stuff where he has someone tell him what's going on or Schneider reads it. Like they're in touch with what's going on out there on the websites and and uh what the reporters are writing and what fans are tweeting. And you can hear kind of a will show them mentality early this week, implying that the best is yet to come. That they haven't seen nothing left yet. That's great if it happens. And it has a history of happening. Pete Carroll teams are better in the second half of the season. They get better as the year goes along. It's one of his great coaching attributes. 
But it also indicates that in some way, subtly, if not overtly, they are purposely holding back. Purposely not letting it all hang out. They're 6-2. and two. That's a damn good first half. And with both games left against San Francisco, they can make their own hay. But after Tampa this Sunday, they face the 49ers, then a bye, the Eagles, the Rams, and the Vikings. That stretch is going to define the season. And it could further define where Carroll is at this stage of his coaching career. I'm worried, is what I'm saying. But I hope he proves me wrong. Certainly I do. So with that in mind, is Tampa Bay a trap game? They're a team that's been really up and down this year. Looked like they were going to be a surprise team after they steamrolled the Rams in L.A. earlier this year. But they've had some bad losses. Jameis Winston's thrown for a ton of yards, but still throwing really bad picks. They haven't had much of a running game. This game is going to tell us a lot, I think, about Carroll's mindset in terms of what I just talked about. And here's why. The Tampa Bay defense is very definable. They're terrible against the pass and great against the run. They are literally first in the league in rushing defense, only giving up 68 yards a game. They are 31st, second to last in the league in passing defense, giving up 286 yards a game. So, it would stand to reason that the Seahawks should throw the football on Sunday. Weather's supposed to be nice. No rain in the forecast. It's supposed to be sunny and cool like it is today. It's perfect football weather. Those last two, the two home games that they lost were both in bad weather. And there is some concern that Russ doesn't play well in those conditions, and that's something we'll address at another time. But conditions Sunday, as we speak to you today, it's Wednesday. The long-term forecast is this sunny, cool weather is supposed to stick around for about a week. Will they try to exploit that? Or are they just going to slam their heads against the wall trying to prove something? Are they going to throw the football against a bad passing defense? They threw it a ton against the Ravens, too much, especially given the conditions. They threw it a ton early against Atlanta. It wouldn't surprise me if Pete Carroll came out trying to prove to the world that they're a physical football team and it doesn't matter that Tampa ranks first in rushing defense. They're going to prove they can run the football. We'll see. I don't necessarily think this is a trap game from the standpoint of a classic trap game kind of is when you're coming off an important win and you kind of have a bigger game in the upcoming sort of in the near future in the distance and you overlook a team. I think Atlanta was that game for them. I hope it was. And especially the way it went. I think there's ample motivation here to come out sharp. First of all, it's Bruce Arians now, coach in Tampa Bay. And we know the history he had as coach of the Arizona Cardinals and how how successful he was winning in Seattle. He took great pride in that. He is uh, he is an arrogant SOB, and he takes pride in winning in Seattle. And the Seahawks know that, and there's enough players on that roster that it 
played against Arians. But I think they're pissed off enough about the second half in Atlanta. Not just how it went, but in how it's being perceived. And I think they're going to come into the game this week with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. I hope they do. Again, I love Pete Carroll. I want to make that clear. But I loved Mike Holmgren. Loved the way he coached. Loved listening to him talk about the game of football. Loved that he took us to our first Super Bowl. But near the end of his tenure in Seattle, it was clear to me that the league had adapted, passed him by, adjusted to his offense, and his stubbornness, his unwillingness to adapt, his unwillingness to change made him a liability as a coach. And it showed. And he had to go. I'm concerned that the same could be happening to Carroll. It's not as exaggerated, but there are signs. And again, I hope I'm wrong. He can go a long way towards convincing me that I am over the next six weeks. All right, let's talk about baseball. I'm excited to talk about baseball because I want to be clear about this. The offseason starts tomorrow. There's a five-day quiet period, I believe, and then I think it's November 4th or 5th that you can start actually signing free agents in baseball, making trades. It was on November 9th last year that Jerry DePoto traded Mike Zanino to Tampa Bay. That's how early the Mariners offseason started last year. And that was our first sign that, okay, they're serious. They're actually going to do a rebuild. And by the end of the month, before the winter meetings, Paxton and uh, Paxton had been traded. And I think the Diaz trade went down right around the 1st of November as well. Obviously, there won't be as much heavy lifting this year. But I think some moves will be crucial. I don't think it's as simple as just let the kids play this year and then kind of wait and see how they develop and then get aggressive. There won't be as many moves, but I think the moves that are made will be just as crucial to the rebuild and to the to the first phase of the rebuild. Well, the second phase. The first phase was last year was, was offloading some contracts, getting back some high-end young talent. They did that. Now they're kind of in that in-between phase where they're waiting for those kids to blossom and they're getting close. It's going to be really interesting this next year, but they need to add to that roster too and they need to add a couple of pieces this year of guys that are going to be part of the next phase, that are going to be part of getting back to being good again. You can't just have young guys. Look at these teams in the World Series. There are young guys, but there were veterans, key veterans added around them, right? The Astros, I'm watching the game right now. The Astros, you have Correa and Springer and Bregman and Altuve and that young core, but then they bring in guys like Brantley, right? They went out and got, they didn't develop their own starting pitching. They went out and got that through free agency, high-end starting pitching and trades with Granke. With the Nationals, same idea. You had your young guys that came up together, your Strasburg and your Zimmerman that came up, and then you added younger guys along the way with Rendon and Trey Turner. Then you added veterans. You traded for Adam Eaton. You made some moves along the way 
that got you over the hump. You signed Patrick Corbin in free agency. You can't just wait. I've talked about this before if you've heard me. You can't just wait until you think you're about to be good and then decide, now we're going to go for it. We're going to get aggressive in free agency. We're going to make a big trade. Because you don't know what the market's going to be at that point. When opportunities present themselves now, you have to take them. And so I think there will be opportunities this offseason to add a couple of pieces that over the next couple of years will help them get back to being competitive before they really blossom and become a contender again. Can't just stand pat. There's some news to pass along this week. There were some roster moves being made. Some guys were outrighted. And when you're a veteran with a certain amount of service time, you have the option, if you're outrighted, of just accepting, if you pass through waivers, of accepting a minor league assignment and staying with the organization but being off the 40-man roster or electing free agency. And Ryan Healy and Anthony Bass both elected free agency. Bass, a little disappointing. I thought he was... One of the best arms in the bullpen at the end of the year, uh, although that's clearly grading on a curve. Um, thought he could have been a nice piece this next year moving forward. Um, but there are so many young bullpen arms coming up through the system that are close to being major league ready. I think the team is just getting ready for that. Um, Keeley just was disappointing. I loved, loved the kid's enthusiasm. I loved his demeanor. I loved how he was in the clubhouse and the locker room. It was uh, gorgeous watching him connect with a baseball, but there were too many strikeouts. Um, and then uh, who knows how severe the back injury was from last year. But I hope I hope he can get healthy again and go on and have a career in Major League Baseball because Healy seems like one of the good guys. But I wanted to kind of comb, and I've been doing this for a little while now, and I wanted to try and identify, to, to really be specific with you about f- the types of free agents I think the Mariners could add. And I think they'll make some trades too. Nothing big. They're not going to turn right around this quickly and trade away assets that they just acquired less than a year ago uh, before they can see how much they can blossom. Um, But I think there are some interesting free agents out there. No, the Mariners are not going to go after Garrett Cole. Does it make some sense? Would it? Yeah. If Garrett Cole thought this was a good environment to play in and liked what the Mariners were doing and was interested in coming here. And it wasn't just a case of where the Mariners would have to severely overpay in an irresponsible manner. Sure. If you could get Garrett Cole for 10 years and $300 million, you would do it because he's that good, but he's not going to be interested in coming here. And you're and any time spent trying to recruit him would be wasted time. Now, is there kind of a, second tier upper end of the free agent market you could attack would Zach Wheeler make some sense he could he's older than I thought he was though as he was coming up with the Mets he's 30 years old now throws 100 miles an hour I'm sure the Mariners certainly see things in his delivery or in his uh, in his stuff that they like but because there just isn't much in the way of high-end starting pitching on the free agent market this this year, he's going to cash in. He'll probably be overpaid. So you're looking more for kind of those, those bargains, those under-the-radar guys that, for one reason or another, uh, are a little more affordable. And, and one guy that really interests me, so I'm going to give you three names. First one is uh, Julio Tehran from the Atlanta Braves. And he's not technically a free agent yet, but he is likely to be within a week. 
um, the Braves have a $12 million club option on him with a $1 million buyout. The Braves are stacked with young starting pitching. Good young starting pitching. And they're just... While there may be room in the rotation for a guy that eats innings and is reliable and doesn't have injury issues, is good, steady, solid starting pitching, and and I'll illustrate some of that here in just a second, it doesn't make a lot of sense to pay $12 million for a guy like that when you have so much young pitching already established on your big league roster and your rotation and more on the way. Plus, Tehran, to me, screams as one of those guys that just needs a change of scenery, and here's why. He's... 28 years old. He'll be 29 when the season starts. Uh, he had an up and down 2019, but he finished with a 10 and 11 record, a 3.81 ERA, a 4.6 FIP. Seven full seasons in the bigs, no significant injuries. He's never pitched less than 107, uh, 174 innings. And he had a high of 221 in 2014, his age 23 season. That was his best year, 14 and 13, 2.89 ERA, 3.49 FIP. A 1.08 whip. Uh, he has career. His career walk to strikeout per nine is three to eight, roughly. He's been very consistent. Again, why would the Braves want to move on from him? That it's the money, but it's also there's some perception involved. Because when he had that breakout season in 2014, everybody thought he was going to develop into an ace, and he never really did. He's a number three starter maybe a number four on a good staff. With the Mariners, he might be a number two. But he's something the Mariners don't have right now. And as they start to give innings to the young guys, Justice Sheffield, Justin Dunn, we're going to see Logan Gilbert this year, maybe a guy like Penn Murphy, maybe Ricardo Sanchez. It's you have to have a couple of veterans in that rotation to eat innings. Think Mike Leak from a production standpoint, but better productivity and a higher ceiling. What I like about Tehran is he'll be 29 when the season starts. Again, no major injuries. He throws innings. And the Mariners have shown that they're pretty adept. This current staff, they're pretty adept at acquiring pitchers and making tweaks to get the best out of them. We saw it with some of those bullpen guys that were discarded from other organizations last year, but they would change their pitch mix. They would eliminate a pitch. They would sharpen a pitch. And maybe something like that with Tehran. And at his age, he could become just one of those solid guys that helps anchor your rotation. At worst, really. At worst, he's a guy that throws 180 innings for you next year when you only have two other guys on the roster that are probably capable of doing that, Marco Gonzalez and Yusei Kikuchi. So that'd be a valuable player to have. Best case scenario is he goes out and looks great, and maybe you can trade him at the deadline or in the offseason. But he's probably open to signing a shorter-term deal to reestablish himself and prove himself. He's not going to get a big, lucrative, long-term deal. I don't think. So that's a name to remember. Another guy that I like, even though he's a little older, is Tanner Roark. 
Uh, finished the season with Oakland last year. He was a trade deadline acquisition from Cincinnati. Didn't pitch great for the A's down the stretch. He just turned 33. Um, but he was with the, the uh, Washington Nationals up until 2018. And he put up seven really solid, dependable seasons. Again, think Mike Leak, but a little bit better pitcher. Uh, career FIP of 4.02. Roughly two and a half walks per nine. Just over seven strikeouts per nine. His best season with 2016, he actually finished 10th in the Cy Young voting that year. He was 16-10 and 10 with a 2.83 ERA and 172 strikeouts in 210 innings. He's a very solid, dependable pitcher who doesn't walk too many guys, can miss some bats, never had injury issues, and isn't going to cost a ton and isn't going to require a long-term deal. The Mariners need, I think, at least one of those guys. Why not both? Tehran might cost you a little bit more. You might have to go three years on him. Maybe you can get Rourke on a one-year deal. Roark. Sorry. And then there's another one. And I, and I find this one really interesting. Um, so Jeff Passan reported this week that a Japanese, very intriguing Japanese outfielder is going to be posted in November. Not Shogo Akiyama, who the news broke a couple of weeks ago that the Mariners have interest in him. And he's being posted as well. The Mariners have reportedly scouted him. But Akiyama is 31. Used to play center field. The reports are that he's not as good in center field anymore, so he's probably a corner outfielder. Has some power, but he's more of an on-base guy. Good hitter. Solid defender. But again, he's 31 years old. Passon reported, and I'm surprised this hasn't gotten any more traction. And hopefully I'll get the name right. Yoshitomo Tsutsugo. He's 28 years old. He played some first base early in his career, but he's he's mostly an outfielder now, a corner outfielder. Uh, the reports I read say he profiles as a guy that can play more first base as he gets older, and probably mostly left field is where you'd want him because he doesn't have a great arm. Six foot, 209 pounds. He's played eight full seasons. His career batting average is 284. His career on base percentage, get this, is 382, with a career OPS of 907. His power, the last four seasons, has really blossomed to go along with his on-base skills. And when you see video of him, um, there's been comparisons with Bryce Harper in the way he swings the bat, just in his stroke. Um, and, and one scouting report I read, the one from Fangrass, made it sound like he was kind of an all-or-nothing hitter, a home run or bust uh, or strikeout. And I, I don't see that in the numbers. The last four seasons... This is, this is how I like to look at it. His average season over the last four years. If you take the last four years and average it out, this is what his average year looks like. 293 batting average, a 402 on base percentage, averaging 35 home runs. Over the last four years, averaging 87 walks to 117 strikeouts. That doesn't sound to me at all like an all-or-nothing type hitter. That screams... Bat-to-ball skills. But mostly it screams plate discipline. Where he recognizes what he can handle. 
and he punishes what he likes. He has huge power to go along with those on-base skills. And he figures to be, from everything I can read, and it's kind of hard to find really detailed reports, at least an average outfielder. But, well, why would the Mariners need need to sign an outfielder when they already have, that's maybe their strongest position in the organization. True. But he may be a better DH first base slash left field option than either Domingo Santana or Daniel Vogelbach. He may have more power and a better eye than either of those two players. And he may be a little more versatile. Wouldn't be as big a liability in the outfield as Santana and could possibly develop into a better first baseman than Daniel Vogelbach, and you have the DH spot. So it would give you some versatility. He wouldn't be DH only, although he kind of does, in my scenario, profile as a guy that would get a lot of DH at bats. But he would also give you the kind of flexibility with the roster that's intriguing because he would add to an already deep outfield group, which would allow you to entertain the idea of trading from strength to address a weakness and perhaps acquire some starting pitching. It, it could free you up to trade Mitch Haniger or Jake Fraley or Braden Bishop or Kyle Lewis. One of those types of players in advance of the expected arrival of Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez over the next few years. So just a thought, just a name to tuck away. Haven't heard any specific reports linking him to the Mariners yet, but I like the sounds of Tsutsugo more than I like uh, what Akiyama sounds like as a player. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for me today. A little Seahawk and Mariner talk. Um, again, thank you for listening to, this, to the podcast. You can support it by subscribing, leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please uh, follow me on Twitter, at Seahawks Forever. I love interaction. Don't be afraid to DM me with a question or a thought. Um, or if you just want to go round and round about certain issues involving the Mariners or Seahawks, agree or disagree with anything you hear on this podcast, Again, I love a good debate. You can also leave a voice message for me through the Anchor app. The link is in my Twitter profile, and I can use it in the podcast and respond to it directly. Um, I would love to see uh, more interaction from you guys. But until then, thanks for listening. Um, as I always say, go Seahawks, go Mariners. Is there any other and go Cougs.